Well, before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is March 23rd, 2022, and my name is Ben Bauman. I'm here in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I'm speaking via phone with Mark Palmer, who is in Zionsville, Indiana, and we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So just starting off, when and where were you born? I was born in Princeton, Indiana, uh, in July 15, 1952. Okay. And uh, what were your parents' names? Uh, my father's name was Don, D-O-N, Palmer. My mother's name was Marion Palmer, M-A-R-I-A-N. Okay. Where was your family from before Indiana? Before Indiana? Yeah. Uh, I don't really know. Oh, okay. How long have they been here? <laughs> well, I, I, I only know that uh, I can trace, I only know that I can trace my, uh, uh, father's side back to about the 1870s. Okay. We have some information that the great-great-great-great-grandfather was born perhaps in North Carolina. Okay. And uh, may have actually fought in the Civil War uh, on the Confederate side. Okay. <laughs> uh, I just sort of found out that information. I haven't verified it, but right. it's... What I have found is kind of coincidental. It's kind of interesting. Sure, sure. My uh, other side is much more interesting. We have the certificate of entry from the great-great-grandfather who entered the United States in 1878 in Port Arthur, Texas. Wow. Uh, and he had come from Northumbria in England, which is up around Newcastle. He was a coal miner. Wow. And he uh, apparently uh, came to the Midwest in some way and worked uh, in coal mines, but was always involved in union organizing activities. Yeah. So, so he was blacklisted every place he went. He would work for a little while, and then the blacklist would catch up with him. And uh, he eventually moved his family moved out to Oklahoma where he was a coal miner out there and had to forswear any union activities before they were hired. Uh, and so uh, my grandfather was actually born in Oklahoma before it was a state. Wow. And he started in the coal mines when he was uh, about 14 years old and uh, never finished high school and ended up uh, working in Illinois, Southern Illinois, coal mines, where he met my grandmother, and eventually they came to Indiana, in uh, Gibson County, Indiana. Wow, okay. So, quite a journey then for your family to Indiana. <laughs> yeah, on my, on my uh, mother's side, for sure. Yeah, wow. Um, what were your parents' occupations? Uh, my father was a school teacher and a coach. Uh, my mother was a mostly uh, uh, administrative assistant when she worked. Um, and I think she also 
kind of remember she worked at a library, but I can't, I can't, I don't remember that specifically, but I know she was administrative assistant at the high school that I went to. Yeah, okay. Uh, do you have any siblings? I have one sister who lives in Vincent, Indiana. Her name is Dana, D-A-Y-N-A. Okay. Adams, Adams. So how would you describe your childhood? Uh, my childhood was uh, probably pretty typical. Uh, I liked to play sports. Rode my bike all over the place. Uh, my grandparents, uh, my grandfathers would take me hunting and fishing. I was terrible at both. Uh, and uh, didn't really enjoy hunting, but I went with them a couple times. Uh, I rode my bike with friends, went out to, uh, back then, you know, we lived in a little town outside of Vincennes. It was very small. And we, uh, so I would take off in the morning on my bike just by myself and just yeah. ride around all day. You know, you couldn't do that today. Uh, uh, but uh, nobody thought anything of it at that time. So. Right, right. And I played Little League Baseball, and uh, my dad was a coach, so obviously I liked to play basketball. And, and uh, uh, so that occupied most of my time. Who were the most influential people in your childhood? Well, uh, you know, you always say your mother and father, they were right. influential. Uh, my, uh, my mother was a very kind person, and one of the lessons that I always will remember from her is that we lived right on Highway 50 uh, when we lived in this little town called Frichton. Uh, that's where I went to school for the most of my elementary and middle school years up till ninth grade. And she, uh, we would, it would be, it would not be, it would not be uncommon uh, for uh I guess you would call them hobos who mm -hmm. would ride trains and you know follow the railroads and hitchhike around. And they would, from time to time, come to our house and uh, ask for something to eat. Wow! Or ask 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 for money to get them something to eat. Yeah. And my mother would my mother would never uh, give them uh, money, but she would always make sandwiches for them or, uh, you know, cook something for them. And I can remember talking to one of them out on the back porch. He just waited there for her to come out with his, his food. And, and uh, uh, you know, he was an interesting guy that, you know, obviously either enjoyed being a hobo or was down on his luck. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the other thing was that uh, I also remember my mother, my, my grandfather, who worked, uh, her father who worked in the coal mines was a wonderful guy, but, you know, he grew up in a different era, uh, and people that were not white, uh, and like him all had you know, derogatory nicknames. Yeah. And, you know, he would just spew these names out while he was ranting about these people. Oh, for wow. Some reason, yeah. For some reason. And my mother said, uh, we got in the car one day after this particular dinner. Uh, we had at my grandparents' house, and she said, "If I ever hear you uh, say those names that your that that your grandfather said at the table, I will get you down and stuff a whole bar of soap in your mouth." Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, 
And she also she also used phrases like I will I will slap you into the middle of next week if I ever hear you say something like that. Yeah. So so uh, she was uh, you know she didn't want me to uh, learn to make fun of people or to you know use derogatory words about people if I didn't know them. So she was a very kind person. My my dad was more stern. Uh, he he like I said was a coach. And, uh, you know, so he worked with me to teach me how to shoot baskets, how to hit baseballs, play catch with me. But, you know, he was a, he was a guy that you didn't want to cross because uh, uh, he you know, had a little bit of a temper. So I was always a little more careful around him than I was my mom. Yeah. I don't think that's unusual in families, you know, somebody, right. there's, always a, there's always an enforcer, you know, yeah. one, or, one or the other is always an enforcer. <laughs> yep. Interesting, okay. And so, uh, what did you know about your family's political beliefs then, growing up? Well, my grandfather, uh, I didn't pay, well, here's here's the two biggest memories I had. My grandfather was a, a, a union coal miner, and so... yeah. Uh, and, you know, they, and both parents on each side kind of grown up in the Roosevelt era and uh, Franklin Roosevelt era. And they had, uh, so being a strong coal miner, my grandfather was uh, Democratic and, you know, was a big fan of Roosevelt. And uh, my, uh, on my, uh, my father's side, uh, they were all school teachers, uh, and I can remember my mother on the way to the, this first, the earliest political memory I had was my mother, when I was in the grade school, was going to vote uh, in the general election and was singing Hey Look Me Over, which was Birchville High's uh, theme song. Yeah. And it was a very popular, catchy song, and she was singing it on the way to the polls. So I figured she must be a Democrat. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I later came to find out that, uh, you know, both sides of my family were Democrats. And uh, so uh, as I got older, I really wasn't quite sure what I was going to be. I hadn't really thought much about it. But uh, eventually I joined joined the rest of the family. Yeah. So was, the, was there like kind of an expectation that you would be a Democrat or were they more like, okay, you know, it's up to you. You can be whatever you want or. They never, uh, they never, uh, really talked. Okay. Uh, politically about what I should be or not be. Right. They just, uh, they just sort of left it up to me and really I didn't, uh, uh, didn't think much about it. I, I voted, uh, up until I got in politics, I generally voted uh, Democrat. Yeah. Okay. Um, what schools did you attend growing up? Well, since my dad was a coach, we kind of moved around a little bit. And uh, so uh, my earliest school was in Clay City, Indiana. He was a basketball coach in Clay City, which is obviously in Clay County, uh, by Terre Haute. And... Uh, then uh, he was a coach in St. Well, before that, he had been a coach at uh, St. Francisville and uh, Illinois, which is across the river. 
I think in Lawrence County, Illinois, across from Knox County. I think he coached at Decker Chapel, which is a little school that uh, no longer uh, exists. And we lived in Decker, Indiana at that time where my grandparents lived. And then we moved to Clay City. Then we lived in Fritchton, where my dad was a coach. Uh, then, uh, then we eventually bought a house, and my folks bought a house in Monroe City, which was a little bigger town, uh, but in the same consolidated school district as where I went to high school, which was called South Knox okay. High School. Um, and how were your educational experiences? Well, it was probably like a lot of kids. You know, we had uh, had some good teachers. I had some bad teachers. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, the so I think it, I think I would classify it as normal. Okay. <laughs> I was I was always a pretty good student. I think I was expected to be a good student, and. Uh, so I always had good grades. I was always at the top of my class in some way. And uh, when I went to high school, you know, we consolidated. I had different teachers. And just like my other experiences, I had good teachers and bad teachers. Uh, so, you know, I guess the, uh, same, the same thing applied, you know. Did you have any, like, favorite subjects in school? Well, I loved history. You know, I still love history. And I, I've always liked that. I wasn't particularly strong as a mathematician, uh, uh, did not enjoy math. It was, it was, uh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure it was, was it because I wasn't good at it or I just wasn't willing to work at it hard enough or, 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 or was not confident in it. I just, I just don't know why, but I, I just, I, I, I made decent grades in math, but they weren't like what I made in English and, Right. I get. Maybe I'm a you know right brain person uh, who does quarantine with the humanities sort of things, liberal arts sort of things, rather than math. And just, but I was I was also good in science, also very good in science. Oh, okay. Now, were you part of any clubs or sports teams as well in high school? Yes, I I, I won fourteen. Athletic letters when I was in high school. I ran track. I ran cross country. I played baseball. I played basketball. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> right. Okay. I wasn't particularly good in track or cross country, but I was better in baseball and I was pretty good in basketball. Yeah, that's cool. All right. So, how did you view Indiana growing up? Um. I'd have to say I was always sort of, uh, I always really liked the history of Knox County. I was aware of it, I think, even as a young person. Uh, We went to see some of the historical sites in Vincennes and uh, like the Clark Memorial. Have you ever been to Vincennes? Have you ever gone down to see that stuff? I have not. Well, so Vincennes is the oldest town in Indiana, the oldest city in Indiana. It was established in 1732 by French uh, explorers, and there was a trading post there where they intermingled with the uh, uh, Native Americans at that time. Yeah. 
uh, and uh, in 1779, it was the furthest Western battle of the American Revolutionary War, uh, when George Rogers Clark took Fort Sackville and uh, uh, and sent the British packing back to Detroit, and uh, and then later on it became the uh, uh, the Indiana territorial capital. So the Indiana territorial capital comprised basically Indiana, Illinois. Minnesota, Wisconsin, and uh, Michigan, and that was uh, that was the remnant of the Northwest Territory back in uh, that was established in 1797. Ohio withdrew in 1800, and the rest of the states then became the Indiana Territory. Uh, William Henry Harrison was appointed the governor of the Indiana Territory in 1800, and lived there until about 1813, I think. And so the place where he lived in, in uh, Vincennes is uh, built a house there called Grouseland, and uh, that's that served as the Indiana territorial capital. It served as his home, and it served as a fortress in case they were attacked. It was the site of a meeting between Chief Tecumseh and Harrison in 1810, and was the base camp when Harrison went up to fight the battle at uh, Tippecanoe. Yeah. So, so it has an important place, and I was always aware of its importance uh, 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 from an early age. Yeah. Okay. So you were pretty aware then that of like Indiana's place in American history, and uh, you had. Yeah, I'd like, yeah, yeah. I'd, like to, I'd like to say that I was. I'm probably yeah. giving myself too much credit, but. I, <laughs> I, and, and part of that is that, you know, in fourth grade, we're supposed to learn Indiana history. Sure. And, and, uh, and so we would visit these sites and learn about them, and people would talk about them, and, you know, so it was a big deal, and, uh, and, and still is, I think. And so we, uh, uh, but I think, you know, until I was in the fourth grade, my, my, uh, uh, understanding of Indiana was probably uh, not any different than any other kid, you know. Sure, sure. And, you know, it's place in the world, but uh, I, I, for as long as I can remember from about, you know, elementary school on I, uh, to today, I was always proud of Knox County's place in history and, uh, and uh, continue to think that way. Yeah, okay. Now, after you graduated from high school, what did you do next? I went to a small Methodist college in Owensboro, Kentucky, called Kentucky Wesleyan College, and I went there on a basketball scholarship uh, where they had a really good team, and uh, I really wanted to play basketball for Evansville College at that time because they were uh, a powerhouse, but it turned out Kentucky Wesleyan was a powerhouse too. Oh, okay. And uh, we actually won the national uh, Division two championship in 1973. Wow! Uh, when I was on the team, and so uh, and I have a lot of good memories about uh, you know playing sports there. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Not many people can say that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and what was your major there? It was business administration and economics. Okay. And uh, so. After you graduated, what, what was kind of your goal and your game plan for the rest of your life? Uh, 
Well, I didn't really have a game plan until my senior year of college. Okay. And uh, I was taking a business law course uh, that was uh, uh, taught by a local attorney, uh, Richard Ford. Uh, he was a local attorney in Owensboro, Kentucky. And uh, I did quite well in it. And, and at, the, uh, at the end of one class, he asked if I would come up and see him, and I did, and he, he suggested that I go to law school. And I had never, I had never contemplated that before. I always thought I would, I didn't want to be a school teacher like my father or my grandfather, because actually I thought it was pretty hard, yeah. pretty, pretty hard work, and I didn't, I didn't see myself in that situation. And, uh, I knew I wanted to do something different, but going to law school had never crossed my mind. So, not only did he, not only did he suggest that I go to law school, but he also suggested the law school I should go to, which I did, uh, and it was Mercer University in Bacon, Georgia, of all places. Oh, okay, yeah. So you know, I, I was lucky, lucky to get in and. Uh, I suppose, and, and uh, I was, uh, started my uh, uh, career, uh, started my law school in uh, September of 1974. Okay. In Macon, Georgia. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, how do you, like, looking back on your college experiences, how would you describe them in law school and as an undergrad? not very close to any people I went to college with or uh, very many. I'm, I'm close with about one other person I went to college with. Oh, okay. And close with a couple people that were in my law school class, you know, I just, yeah. not, not particularly close to any of them. And, uh, uh, I made, I made friends there, but, you know, just haven't stayed in touch with them. I right. attribute that a little bit to, uh, having moved back to Indiana, uh, and, formerly, you know, not been part of the scene there growing up. Yeah. People. So I think that affected that. But uh, uh, my experience in high school was good. I mean, I, I, uh, I finished in the top five in most class. Uh, I uh, had an opportunity to go to a lot of different schools uh, to play basketball. Uh, some were uh, far away, and my parents didn't really discourage me from going any place, but they just kept saying, well, we'd like to be someplace where we can watch you play. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it was kind of a given. I was going to stay close. Yeah. Uh, now, had I, had a, if I could go back and talk to my younger self, I would probably, and uh, the place I went wasn't particularly strong academically, you know, when I uh, went there, uh, I think it's improved quite a bit from what it was. Yeah. Was, wasn't particularly strong then. And had, uh, so if I could talk to my younger self, I would probably say not play basketball, but go to a stronger academic place and learn how to play golf. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Huh. But, but, you know, when you're that age at that time, yeah, you know, you just have kind of, uh, you know, that was something I, I always wanted to do, and I wasn't sure that if I didn't 
uh, you know, my parents never had a lot of money, and and I didn't think they could afford to send me, you know, any place. So uh, a lot of kids uh, in Knox County. My my father. I was the only member of my family. My mother never went to college, but all my other family members that went to college have all gone to Vincennes University, uh, which is a two-year school. Uh, and by the way, there's only two presidents that have started universities. One is Thomas Jefferson, and one is uh, William Henry Harrison. And uh, so Harrison started Vincennes University, uh, originally called the Jefferson Academy, you know, back in the early 1800s. Right. So, so, uh, so the so the, the tradition was you would go to Vincent University, you would live at home, you would work. Uh, in addition to going to school, you would save up your money, and then you'd go to Indiana State uh, for the most part, or uh, Indiana University or Purdue for your last two years if you could afford. Yeah. Okay. I've known I've known many 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 kids from my high school class, and. Uh, uh, that have done that. All the family members have done it. Uh, and my wife went to Vincent University for a year, at least, before going by. So it was very common where I grew up. Yeah, okay. Sounds like it. Yeah. And I knew I didn't want to do that. <laughs> right, yeah. It's understandable. You want to do something different. and Yeah. So in what ways uh, did your awareness of politics change, perhaps, when you went through uh, uh, college and law school? Uh, my uh, political leanings uh, didn't change that much. I was, okay. you know, trying to, was trying to figure out uh, you know, who to... Uh, where I landed on the political spectrum when I started thinking about it. Uh, I, first time I could vote for president, you know, I, obviously I grew up kind of in the Watergate era. I became a, became a, a, a kind of a, a entered my adulthood in the Watergate era. So obviously I was disillusioned with uh, Nixon. Uh, Growing up when I was a kid, I loved John Kennedy, uh, thought he was cool, uh, and uh, so I think I could vote the first time in 1972, I think that's right, Yeah. and uh, I think I'm, I'm sure I voted for McGovern. But he really wasn't my cup of tea. You know, I thought he was a little too uh, liberal, mm. even then. You know, <laughs> and I think yeah. that was the, I think that was the, I think that was the kind of rub on him. But you know, he, he lost badly. But then later, it was revealed about you know Watergate and all that stuff. And right. I, I was happy I, I made that vote. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, I. Uh, Voted for Carter. Uh, so I graduated from college in 74, graduated from law school in 77. I know I voted for Carter in uh, 76. Uh, became disenchanted with Carter, even though I was in Georgia at that time, you know, thinking just going south. 
and he seemed ineffectual. He was a nice guy, but you know, I, uh, I just, I, I really didn't see him. Uh, as as being the type of leader we needed at the time. Uh, I think it was more bad luck for him than incompetence, you know. I think yeah, yeah. I think it was just events of the world stayed him up. And uh, I didn't care for Reagan. So in, in 1980, I didn't care for Reagan. Uh I didn't want to vote for Carter, so I think I voted independent. I think there was a guy named John Anderson. I think I voted for him. Um, but I pretty much voted Democrat in presidential elections since then. Okay, sure. So in terms of awareness, in terms of awareness, uh, the uh, I don't remember much politically when I was in uh, I was a prosecutor for three years in Macon, Georgia, after I got out. And uh, uh, then, uh, then we had our first child and moved back to Princeton, Indiana, where I was also a deputy prosecutor there. And I can remember getting an inquiry from the... Uh, well, actually, there, there was only one... Republican officeholder in Gibson County at that time, who was the county prosecutor, and and uh, and so I, he didn't hire me because of political affiliation or anything, and he just needed somebody to help out. Yeah, uh, and so I went to uh, was in his office, and you know we were both part time, so we could take side jobs. So I got contacted by. The attorney general's office that one day, I forget who the attorney general was in the early 80s. Might have been Ted Sendak or somebody. But I got contacted by the office. They wanted me to do something for them, and I can't remember what it was. But one of the questions they asked is, and I think they were trying to flush me out to see what I was. And, and, I, and I, I can't remember exactly, but I thought they asked me what I was. Okay. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so uh, we didn't go into a long discussion about it, but I said, you know, I'm really, really not sure at this point. And, uh, but uh, I have voted Democrat in the past, and I, I think that was like that was maybe the end of the op that opportunity. <laughs> and... Uh, so then I, uh, uh, one day I got a visit from the, not, or the Gibson County Democrat chairman who came up into my office, and I thought I thought he was there because somebody had written him a bad check or something. <laughs> okay. He wrote a he wrote he uh, he ran a tavern in Fort Branch, Indiana, and so he came up and he said he asked me if I would be interested in running to be the mayor of Princeton. Wow. And, and again, it was almost like that situation where the professor asked me if I was going to, should have gone to law school. You know, it's like, like somebody hit me in the head with a hammer. So yeah. I, I, I never even thought about it, uh, running for office. And from that point, it's kind of triggered me. And I don't know what it was. Maybe I was flattered or maybe uh, somebody saw something in me. I, it's in me I didn't think I had or something, but 
at that point I start getting interested in it. And, uh, uh, and then not too long after that, I noticed that the sitting state representative only won his election by 200 votes in the primary against a lady who worked in the Gibson County Courthouse, but nobody knew her outside of basically the courthouse, which told me that somebody, uh, that the sitting representative was, you know, having a, there's some issues there that, you know, he could only win against basically an unknown by 200 votes. Wow. Uh, and uh, at that time, the district was probably 60, 65% Democrats. So that's what you had to be to win that district. So I thought about it, and, and I I had uh, also gone out in the private practice by that time, and I kind of thought that if I ran for office, that it would uh, raise my profile and, you know, would enable me to be more successful in my law practice. Yeah. So from a, it was, it was basically a way to, after I came out of the prosecutor's office, to get my name out. And uh, I didn't know if I had a shot or not. I, I, I didn't think I had that good a chance because the, the sitting representative was pretty, was pretty well known. And uh, so I ran against him in the primary and then doing some research, found out that he had uh, he had run for Congress and he was a big time realtor, and, uh, you know, flew around in helicopters and all this kind of stuff. And so I and my grandfather had actually taught him in high school, and uh, so I I threw my hat in the ring. I had a total of fifteen hundred dollars. Okay, <laughs> I borrowed fifteen hundred dollars to run this election which would buy me, at that time, 10 signs, 10 signs and uh, about uh, five days worth of radio. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anyway, I, uh, I, I, uh, I have to tell you one funny story about it. So, yes. He was, uh, he was, uh, a Golden Gloves boxer. My opponent was a Golden Gloves boxer in the Army and, uh, when he was 20 years old. And he was pretty good, he was a good fighter, I think, and boxed uh, in and out of the Army as an amateur. Okay. During the time I was, right before I ran against him, he decided to turn pro as a boxer at like age 38 or 39. Uh, and I can remember stories about uh, after I got elected, uh, people told me, you know, now that it was safe to tell me, uh, he had, he had, uh, he would have fights at the Indianapolis Armory and, you know, all the legislators would go down there shout encouragement you know he he won like you know a bunch of fights uh, four or five fights in a row and, uh, he was getting a lot of press about that wow. so uh, he, he didn't campaign against me in an active way that I remember 
uh, and I couldn't figure out why I was not doing anything. And so anyway, the day that I went to the AARP breakfast to uh, talk to you know the 15 people that were there, the uh, he the my opponent, the sitting legislator, was on Good Morning America. Uh, being interviewed about his legislation that he was called the fighting legislator. <laughs> and so he was being interviewed about, you know, his boxing career. And I figured that was worth about a million dollars worth of publicity for him. Yeah. Uh, so I, I saw that and I said, well, I'm probably, probably toast by this. <laughs> uh, and, uh, then I, then in doing my research, I found out that he, uh, started looking at voting records and stuff like that. And I kept noticing that there were a lot of times he didn't vote at all. Hmm. And so uh, a uh, so just to give you an example, I think in 1981 he voted 85% of the time. Now most legislators try to vote 100% of the time. Right. Uh, given the circumstances of the end of the session and conference committees and stuff like that, you can't make every vote. So most people are, most people will vote, you know, 97, 98% of the time. Uh, and, and, uh, so he was, he was clocking in at 85% of the time. Yeah. Then in, then in 1983, he voted, uh, 80% of the time. Then in 1983, or excuse me, 84, he voted 75% of the time. It was something like that. It was in that rough, that roughly that time period, and that was the voting pattern. So the theme of my campaign was that I'll be there. And uh, uh, so we had one televised debate, and I'd never been on television before. <laughs> and uh, we had it at Vincent University. And, you know, brought up this question, and he said, "Well, I, I hate to say it, but I, I had to take care of my sick grandmother. <laughs> Why well, I missed all those votes, which I later found out was probably uh, an exaggeration in some way. But, uh, uh, so, anyway, to make a long story short, I won the primary by uh, 300 votes, uh, and." Uh, then I went on to the general election against a Republican who uh, had been a used car salesman, or not a used car salesman, a car salesman. And Ben says he was a nice guy, and you know we had a we we didn't have a mean we didn't have a mean uh, election or anything like that. But you know I ended up winning that pretty handily, and then for my next. The next two times I ran, I was unopposed in the primary of the general election. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so when you were running for the General Assembly, did you have any, like, specific legislative issues that you were focused on, or? Um, you know, I always thought I'd be, I always thought I'd be interested in the education side of things, because I wanted to. I had a lot of empathy for teachers and uh, administrators and the education system. And, right. You know, I wanted, wanted to make sure they were watched over and taken care of. Uh, I knew that uh, coal was a, you know, big economic.
economic uh, 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 have a, have a large economic importance in my district, and I want to make sure that got a healthy uh, healthy coal uh, producing mm -hmm. atmosphere, and also one of the things I found out was that. Uh, my opponent in the primary and the sitting legislator had made a made a vote that was uh, hated by the United Mine Workers. Okay. And 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 I can't exactly remember what it was. It had, I think it had something to do with putting diesel generators inside the coal mine, you know, which would have potential to foul the air and stuff like that. So, and he voted that was okay, or something like that. I'm not sure. So, you know, given my grandfather's past history with the mine workers, I, you know, felt, felt close to them. Yeah. To make sure that they were taken care of. Uh, and uh, so those those were probably my... Uh, and, and also, I was very cognizant of the farming community because that was a large economic factor in my district. So I wanted to make sure that I could help the farming community out. So I had, had ideas about how to get... Uh, better roads here and how to uh, uh, you know make tax burdens lighter on the farm community so I, I sort of focused in on that sure. so not not terrifically uh, not terrifically you know uh, out of the box thinking for that district but, but you know that was I just thought of that as sort of meat potato stuff yeah right and when it came to like the election process, did it seem pretty straightforward and a pretty well run election and everything like that? Yeah, I don't have any. I don't have any uh, memories of anything being uh, confusing or out of bounds or untowards or anything like that. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, I, 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 I thought it was. I thought it was fine. But, uh, didn't have any changes I would uh, particularly worried about. Yeah. What was your reaction when you found out that you won? Well, so, so anyway, I uh, I tried. Uh, I don't know if this. I don't know if this was smart or not, but I, I tried to be at every precinct in the district during the course during the course of the day. Okay. So I probably actually spent more time driving than I did, you know, actually with the precinct because it was a long district. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, I hadn't eaten anything all day. At the end of the day, I got home and I went to bed. I had a, it felt like somebody had driven a 10 penny nail into my head. I just had a terrific headache. Yeah. And, and I think I just laid in bed, maybe went to sleep. I was so tired. <laughs> and then the phone rang and somebody, I think my wife answered the phone. She said, uh, "You might want to listen to this." So the phone call was that I won the won the election, won the primary. So I went down to the courthouse and uh, uh, shook hands with everybody down there. I was pretty stunned, really, at uh, at the result. Uh, wasn't sure if I was going to win or not, and uh, so uh, it was a it was a happy day. Yeah, I bet. Did you kind of maintain that general campaign strategy uh, and political issues that you had, like the rest of your career when it came to campaigning for future elections? 
Well, you know, uh, I really didn't have to campaign <laughs> for the next two times. Okay. So, <laughs> so I, I, I maintained it for I maintained it for uh, uh, you know the, the general election in 1984. But yeah. Sort of the same same themes, and I. Uh, but I really didn't have to campaign in the next the next two election cycles. Okay, that makes it easy then. Yeah. Um, so, when did you get married? I uh, got married uh, uh, three days before I started law school. Okay. And, I, and September thirteenth, Friday, September thirteenth, nineteen seventy four. <laughs> okay. And uh, do you have any children? Yes, I've got two children. Okay. Uh, I've got a son named David, who's a lawyer in San Francisco, practices immigration law, and I've got a daughter named Emily who lives here in Indianapolis, and she uh, she uh, works for me, I guess, is the best way to say it, uh, okay. with, my, with my law of practice. Yeah. And what, what's your wife's name? Her name is Ann. We okay. went to high school together, uh, high school sweethearts. So. Oh, cool, okay. Yeah, we were in the same grade in high school. Yeah, neat. Um, so now thinking about your service in the Indiana General Assembly, uh, what were you thinking the first day that you walked into the state house as an elected official? Uh, where's the bathroom? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Always good that to know. Pretty, that was pretty important. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I... I uh, but actually, the first time I walked into uh, uh, state house as an elected official was at our caucus uh, before the first day, the organization day of the general assembly. So okay. you you use that day as a, to elect your leader leadership of your caucus. So uh, I had I had. Uh, I showed up and we had 39 members of the Democrat caucus. Uh, and there's a funny story about that. So we had three, three uh, uh, people running to be the leader of the Democrat caucus, the minority of them at that time. So it was uh, Mike Phillips from Boonville. Stan Jones from Lafayette and Pat Bauer from South Bend. Okay. And each one of them, in the course of the uh, run up to the general election, had come down to either have a fundraiser for me or help me on the radio or, you know, do something for me. And I'm going, and, and I was so na- naive and so wonder, wonder why they're doing this. Why are they coming <laughs> down here? Why do they care? <laughs> And I didn't know that they were sort of uh, setting me up to vote for them, you know, for the leadership position. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so anyway, you know, I was, like I said, I was so naive. Uh, I had the state senator in town that I would ask all these questions. You know, the first time I was elected, uh, uh, well, I'll tell the story first and I'll tell you another. So I was yeah. going to, uh, so I went into the caucus, there's 39 of us in there. So Mike Phillips gets up and he says, well, I have, I have 20 people in the caucus that have committed to voting for me, and I think I'd do a great job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
that Stan Jones gets up and he says, well, I have 22 people that's told me that they're going to vote for me. I think I'd do a great job. And he sat down. Pat Bauer came up and he says, well, I have 18 people that, <laughs> that uh, uh, promised to vote for me. And, you know, by my arithmetic, we should be in the majority. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so he, was a, he was a funny guy. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, so anyway, we had a lot of people that uh, were jumping around. Uh, but, but the state senator that was advising me uh, said, you know, make your, make your choice. When they call, say, made your choice, tell them who your choice is, so they don't keep calling you. So he said, if I'm you, if I'm you, you need to, you need to have somebody from your district or from your area. So that was Mike Phillips. So, so I started getting all these calls and I said, I'm voting for Mike Phillips, you know, and that, but I wasn't bothered anymore. So yeah. I was there. So then, uh, Next time, I, I had to tell you about the first time after being elected, I had a lobbyist come and see me. Okay. And he came down to Princeton to, to meet me, and, and Princeton's a pretty small town. And he says, hey, Mark, said, uh, uh, said uh, hey, you mind if I take you to lunch? And I said, no, that's fine. He said, well, let's go. We can go anywhere you want to go. And I said, well, how about the Dairy Queen? <laughs> So we went to the Dairy Queen. I think he thought we were going to go someplace a little more uh, highbrow, but unfortunately, there wasn't any place highbrow in town. So. There you go, Dairy Queen. Yeah. <laughs> so I was a I was a cheap date. Yeah, uh, that's funny. So so anyway, uh, what was your next question? Yeah. So I was just thinking about like uh, you know when you first got in the General Assembly for a lot of people that can be kind of hard to follow all the things going on. What were your expectations for the legislative process? Well, you know, you're always kind of in awe of what's going on. You, you don't want to... I was pretty quiet. Uh, I didn't... You know, I, I wanted to watch and learn. I didn't want to go off and shoot. I wanted to pick my shots. Uh, and I had, you know, I met a lot of nice people that gave me advice about you know, how to, how to do stuff and what the procedure was and, and uh, what to do, what not to do. And, uh, and then you're kind of left on your own to decide on who should be somebody you rely on for guidance. Uh, you sort of, you sort of uh, through that process, wean out who you, I don't want to use the word trust, but yeah. who, you, who you can rely on to, to tell you the, uh, uh, the straight scoop. Sure. Uh, because even within the caucus, you know, you'll have some people that, you know, they, they're trying to, everybody's always trying to get an advantage either for their bill or for a vote or for something. So you want to make sure that if somebody, and it's not, I'm not saying that to disparage anybody or to disparage the process, but, you know, there's a, so a lot of lobbying that goes on within the within the caucus and within the chamber. Yeah. So you know to advance their agenda, their vote, or their cause, or whatever it might be. And uh, so you know it's just like just like any time you go to any work or anybody uh, in your office, you know, takes time to kind of learn, uh, you know, who the players are, who you can rely on, and we'll tell you straight and who. May not tell you straight, right? And who's who's there to play, and who's there to work? Yeah. So 
uh, you know, that takes a little time to figure out. But I didn't want to do anything that would uh, expose me as a as a you know somebody that didn't know what I was doing. So I kept pretty quiet for the first first part of the session. And just always so I always pick my opportunities to talk or to make a statement pretty carefully. Sure. So I guess that's kind of, you just took it sort of day by day in terms of learning like the ins and outs of the General Assembly and how, how it works and everything. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like pornography. You can describe it, but it won't make sense. You know, you can, right. you know, you see it, you can only, what is it? You said, I know it when I see it. You know, you can't sure. describe it, but you know it when you see it. Right. So I think that was a famous Supreme Court judge quote. Yeah. Uh, uh, something like that, but uh, so it, it is a. It, it takes a while to sort of get down with the process and what the what the uh, I don't want to say tricks, but what the procedure is. And you know, one of the one of the, one of the smartest things I've ever told me is learn the rule book. You know, learn the rule book. <laughs> yeah. So you so yeah. you try to learn the rule book and uh, ask people about it, and you know I. I was, uh, I would always ask questions to people about, you know, what's going on, what's going on now. You have to rely on, you know, your older people, more experienced people to uh, say, well, you may have never heard of this issue before. Uh, you know, what's this issue about? And that was the other thing I always said, you know, who benefits, who benefits by this, who doesn't benefit, and why are we, why are we, dealing with it you know what, what what are those what's the answer to those three questions which is sort of my legislative philosophy i wanted i wanted to know all that background yeah okay so who were your political mentors then in the general assembly well it was it was uh lindell hume who was the state senator for princeton who was a good mentor yeah gave me a lot of wise counsel and advice he was was a great guy to rely upon. His brother Don was in the house, and he was a he was a quiet guy, but he was really smart and gave me a lot of good advice. Uh, I ended I ended up rooming with Pat Bauer, who by that time had already more than ten years in the General Assembly, and he you know was on the important committees. He gave me a lot of good advice and told me what was what. Who was who, and who was uh, who was uh, uh, behind the bill, or you know what what lobbying group or what organization was pushing the bill, and, and uh, so he had all that down. So that was helpful. A guy named Paul Robinson was good. Uh, on the Republican side, I worked with John Thomas out of Clay Clay City. He was a was a straight up guy. Uh, uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, some other folks on the other side, John Donaldson from Lebanon. Uh, I enjoyed being on the on the Judiciary Committee, the Courts Committee. I forget which one I was on. He was the chairman of it. So that was a committee that wasn't overly partisan. So we, we sort of looked at things like lawyers do and uh, tried to come up with a good legal solution for things. So I enjoyed that. And, I had a lot of good people on that committee. 
So uh, I tried to be uh, pretty bipartisan in my approach and getting advice and uh, making friends and, and talking to people about stuff. But I'd have to say that, that Lendl and John and Don Hume are probably my uh, two uh, most important mentors when I started out. Yeah, okay. Sure. And uh, how did you keep track of like uh, what your constituents wanted during your service? Uh, well, you know, that was before uh, cell phones and, and uh, email and uh, those types of communication devices. So <clears throat> you, would, uh, you would get, they have a lot of uh, third houses uh, that people would uh, would write you uh, write you letters. Uh, uh, when I got done with the session, I would go back to my uh, cubby uh, cubby home that they have for legislators. You know, they don't have real offices. They've just got you know, basically like library stands that they work in library kiosks that they work in. Uh, just big enough for a desk, and that's about it. And uh, so, if there was an issue that uh, involved a certain industry or something, I would uh, call people back home and say, "Well, how does this affect you? What's your advice on that?" Uh, for example, if there was something to do with the trucking industry, I would call a friend of mine who had a trucking company. Uh, if there was a uh, utility issue. I called somebody that, worked, that I knew that worked for a utility company. You know, just sort of who you knew, right? Uh, or who had introduced them to you, or who had introduced themselves to you. So you tried to get as much information as you could. But, uh, so it was just it was old school communication. That's <laughs> best I can describe. It. Yeah. No. Definitely. I had a funny story one time that was an alcohol bill that was coming up. I was on the Commerce Committee. It was kind of late at night. It was about 9 o'clock. I was still at my desk working. And, uh, so I pick up the phone, and this guy says, Hello, this is so-and-so, and I would like for you to vote against uh, whatever bill it was. I'm not sure what it was. It was an alcohol bill. And in the background, I could hear Tammy Wynette singing, stand by your man and uh, so I figured he was calling from a bar <laughs> so, so I uh, I hung up the phone and then 30 seconds later the phone again and I picked it up and the guy says hi this is so and so and in the background I could hear Tammy went in singing stand by your man <laughs> and I said how many people are in line behind you and he said oh about 10 and I said give me their names <laughs> And I assume they're all opposed to the bill. Is that right? And he said, that's right. So he gave me all their names. <laughs> so I avoided having to sit through 10 or 12 phone calls. But on, wow. On that, on that same day. But, yeah. you know, everything was by pay phone or desk phone or letters. That was how we operated back then. The newspapers were much more influential back then. Yeah. And, uh, you would. They had a press. They had the press club. Uh, you'd go to the press club, and there'd be uh, newspaper reporters there. 
and that was kind of a a neutral zone, you know. So stuff they learned at the press club, they wouldn't. They, you know, was kind of always off the record unless you agreed it wasn't. And uh, so that's another way you learn stuff. Because you could ask them questions, and they'd ask you questions. But you mutually find out information. Uh, but for the most part, it was a neutral zone. Yeah. Okay. And I think I think the I think the sort of the loss of the hometown newspapers is uh, a tragedy for uh, legislators and the, the general community as well because you know there's and some places don't even have local newspapers anymore so it's hard to figure out what's going on locally. You know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, it does make it much more difficult. Everything's become pretty nationalized. Or cell phone knives, or you know, yeah. tweet, tweet, tweet it. And, uh, yeah. So I think it's uh, I, I really, I really uh, sad at the loss of the local newspapers. You know, go to the press club with the reporters there from Terre Haute, Evansville, Indianapolis, uh, just all over the state, and so you could really get a lot of information there, and it was uh, good to talk to those guys. Yeah. Do you remember? The first bill that you sponsored? Uh, yes. I actually had two bills I got passed my freshman year, so that was pretty unusual for uh, a freshman in the minority party getting two bills passed. Yeah. Uh, and, and the one bill was to change the uh, Knox county court, I believe, to a superior court. Okay. Uh, the judge there was a decent, really decent guy, did a good job. Um, he wanted to be a superior court judge. That supported the, you know, the other, everybody else, so I filed that bill and got it through. Oh, interesting. Wow. And how complex was the process of trying to get a bill passed then? Well, starting out, I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just didn't know, and so I had to rely on, uh, you know, how do how do you how do you get this going? So you know, you have to go talk to the people around you to say, how do you do this? How do you get a bill going? So you had to go make a request at the legislative services agency. You had to get the bill, and you had to file it. You had to go talk to the had to go talk to the chairman of the committee, tell him why he thought it was important. Uh, and then if you got the chairman of the committee, you know, that was always helpful to you. So uh, I think I got it. Uh, I think there were other bills like that. So but I think mine was separate. So I pushed that through independently. And, yeah. Uh, as I remember it, and probably more lucky than good, I would say. Maybe they, maybe they all took pity on me, I'm not sure. <laughs> was it ever challenging to get support for a bill? Uh, yeah, it's always challenging to okay. get support for a bill. And it's, uh, uh, but, you know, most situations uh, involving a local community, you know, most legislators aren't going to put their toe in the water of something like that for, uh, uh, you know, 
in a, somebody else's district, you know. So yeah. since that was specific to the specific to my district, there weren't going to be anybody you know, really stepping their toe into that. Yeah, I could see. You know, later I learned that the chairman, you know, may may not want to do it for reasons having to do with caseload and all that sort of stuff, but. Or maybe the caseload doesn't justify it, or something else doesn't justify it, which uh, later came up in the in that uh, in the in the context of pushing the bill through the legislative process. But eventually, it worked out and, and uh, got it done. Yeah. Okay. Uh, did you end up working with the other party a lot to get some of your legislation passed? I'd like to think I, I'd like to think I did. Okay. Uh, uh, like I said, I wasn't particularly, you know, super partisan. I mean, I, if I had a caucus vote, I would do it. But most of the time, most of the time, uh, I would try to uh, get support from the other side and talk to them about it. Uh, make friends with, uh, particularly with the. Uh, members of the Republican Party that came in in my class, I guess you could say. Uh, so we piled around together and uh, uh, became friends. Yeah, okay. What was the atmosphere like amongst the different members of the General Assembly? Uh, It wasn't as it wasn't nearly as tribal, okay. Uh, then as it is today. Oh, okay. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because you know we didn't have this sort of uh, toxic atmosphere that has turned hyperpartisan. I think that happened. <clears throat> I think that happened uh, in the. In the most significant way back in the mid 90s, you know, when um, Newt Gingrich sort of pushed that contract for America and, you know, these personal uh, insults against people. You know, you're either, if you're not for us, you're against us, you know, there's no middle ground. Yeah, okay. And, stuff. and you know, that didn't, that really didn't exist back then. I mean, you, the president was Ronald Reagan and George Bush, H.W. Bush, and at that time, and uh, well, I guess it was Reagan, Reagan through '88. That's right. And he, he, you know, he was getting along with Tip O'Neill, and they were passing stuff, and uh, they were everybody was seeming. I know that's not the case because I've read too many books about you know what was really going on to say that that was really the case, but but at least on the surface it looked like you know things were uh, you had you know you had you had a divided uh, national ticket or excuse me a national uh, Congress you had a divided Congress from the executive and so uh, uh, you know, they were getting stuff done so. I think at that time, more of uh, the legislators, the legislators were more about getting stuff done as opposed to getting stuff done 
with the idea that it benefits a certain constituency, if that makes sense. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that, that does make sense. I mean, in reality, uh, and it's really the same now, the, uh, about 90% of the stuff is not partisan at all. It's about 10% of the stuff that is. But it just seemed like the 10% of the stuff that is partisan is now hyper-partisan. Right. And it's, and it's, it's not, it's not the same. And it's, uh, you know, it's just designed to set up people for, uh, criticism that they're, you know, either a hyper-liberal or hyper-conservative. <laughs> you know, that's what it seems now. Uh, if there is a middle ground, I think it's been, I think it's been pushed out to kind of more extremes on both ends of the spectrum. Uh, yeah. since so I guess then, during your time, Democrats or Republicans were much more willing to cooperate with each other and sort of find middle ground and versus in the modern era of politics today, it's, I guess, not really so much, there's not so much interest in trying to work with uh, in a bipartisan fashion, I suppose. Yeah, I think there's less interest in doing that just because of the more tribal nature of politics these days. Right. Okay. And, you know, uh, and I think a lot of that is driven by uh, the way the maps are drawn, so as uh, if the maps are drawn, so that you know you've got a eighty percent district, uh, then uh, and you've got a you've got you know uh, you, you don't have to worry about what people in the middle have to think. What you real work, really have to worry about is what the what the Fifteen uh, percent of the people that come out and vote in a primary do, you know. So yeah. you could have you could have a small group of people that comprise seven or eight percent of the voting uh, constituency in a district who may be one issue people, or you know, maybe pretty far one side or the other on the spectrum, control the outcome of the entire thing, you know. So you've got to. And that's where the game's won and lost now on both sides. So who can go farther to the right or farther to the left, depending upon who's coming out and voting at a primary. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, Indiana itself is a Republican state. You can't, it's probably, it's not, it's not 70-30. It's not, uh, it's not 70%. It's not 30%. Uh, for Democrats, not, it's more like 55-45. So the Republicans could probably draw maps that were closer to you know, to that number. Maybe not in every case, but in a lot of cases, uh, and it you know they would still come out uh, ahead. So it's always kind of baffled me. But, you know, I, I guess I've, I've never been in the leadership. So I guess you know the ultimate goal is to get as many people as you can from your from your team, you know, in the legislature. But you know now I think they've got this this legislature right now has like twenty five people, uh, somewhere around twenty five people get 
who are sitting Republicans that are pretty daggone conservative who are being primary from the right for not being conservative enough, you know? And, uh, and I think that's a real concern for the leadership in the Republican Party right now. Uh, you know, how, how, how conservative do you have to be to uh, avoid a primary? Uh, how liberal do you have to be to avoid a primary? You yeah. Know, somebody's going way to the left. And I think that's a result of the maps that we have. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess then gerrymandering seems to have played a, a big role then from your perspective in the General Assembly and how it's evolved over time. I think so. Yeah. And, and it's not just Indiana, it's everywhere. Right, well, yeah, yeah, it's uh, a right. national so, thing. Yeah. So, you know, the thing you see is, is in Indianapolis, they, the, jury, the, the, the redistricting process will produce 80% minority representative Represent, representation in districts and so those are safe seats for minority state legislators and they they probably like it and I don't blame them for not liking it but yeah you know it, at the same time you're not spreading out the experience so that uh, you know in a farther way so uh, uh, so they you know those people are worried about getting primary from the left you know who could who can, who can, I just, I just think these 80% districts, if they can be avoided, should be avoided, because I don't think it, I don't think it, I think it makes things tougher. Yeah. It makes things more uh, prone to being uh, tribalized, I guess. Yeah. I keep, I keep using that word. Well, yeah, I know. I have way to think about it. Yeah, no, I understand. Um, what about the differences between the House and Senate? Well, that was pretty evident this past session. Uh, the the house, uh, the house and the Senate, uh, regardless of who's in the party, uh, who's got the majority, or who's uh, if they're from the same party or not, uh, they all have a friendly rivalry. So the house always calls the uh, the Senate the cave of winds. Uh, the Senate will call the house you know, the little children or something like that. You know, they, they always disparage the other people. And I can remember, I can remember one episode when I was at the house and back then you, you had legislative days. So your short, short session consisted of 30 legislative days and the long session consisted of 60 legislative days. And those days were determined by who met. So if the house met, uh, and the Senate did not, that burned the legislative day for both both houses. Uh, so generally, the leadership in both houses tried to coordinate so they would meet on the same days so one wouldn't deprive the other of the, of the, of the legislative day. Uh, so anyway, uh, I think this is the only one I can remember and I've talked to people since then in the last 40 years, and they don't remember anything since then. So we were in the House, and we got called up. We got called up to the Ways and Means Room. Uh, both parties. We had a joint caucus of the Democrats and Republicans in the Ways and Means Room. And the Senate had... The Senate had burned a day on 
us without consulting us. So they shortened our, they took a day away from us. <laughs> we were collectively, it was almost like Braveheart, you know, across from the, the English Army in that movie. We were so upset. Yeah. You know, we were, everybody was screaming and hollering. We want to go over there and, you know, chop their heads off. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, well, that was a pretty unusual day. And, uh, uh, and now, now it's not that way anymore because they changed the statute governing it. But it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, so that, Remind me again what the question was. I think I'm drifting on here. No, I was just talking about uh, like what the differences were between a House and Senate. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, you know, the Senate says that it's more contemplative, if that's not the word, contemplative. You know, they think about stuff harder and longer. Right. The House, house always jokes that, uh, you know, being elected four years, raise your IQ points 25 by 25. Yeah, because uh, they, they all think they're smarter than the house guys are because they got a four year term. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so, so you know, each side sort of, uh, uh, but the but the house, but the Senate, you know, I got along with people in the Senate. I tried to work with them, vice versa, uh, and uh, that's me personally. But you know, the Senate, they pride themselves on being a little more thorough and how they examine stuff and what the issues are so they they have sort of that uh, philosophy about their house, their house their chamber uh, the house is more like I call it the people's rock fight you know it's a little more a little more uh, uh, spontaneous uh, a little more rowdy if you will uh, the decorum's a little different than the senate so it's probably not like you know any other dividing chamber in the United States. It's probably how they think of each other. Yeah. Okay. Um, how influential would you say like party leadership was to determining like what legislation would get passed? Uh, well, I think they're pretty daggone influential in that, and I think uh, you know since. Uh, they could they could send your the leadership and the party can send you to doom and gloom or they can you know make sure you get a committee hearing and make sure you get an amendment uh, so it's uh, so uh, it's not any different now than it was then you know the leadership of the party and control uh, you know they they determine your fate so you know that's why I always thought it was uh, not uh, not wise to uh, you know, challenge them in any way or to uh, uh, be super critical of them in any way that you know might offend them to the point where you know they would just automatically put your bills in the safe and that be the end of it. You know, or put it in a committee where it never would get heard. Uh, so you have to rely on the committee system a lot because you can't obviously know a thousand different issues. So the committee chairman are also important. I mean, I respect that. I respect that a lot. Uh, 
So, for example, in the House and Senate together, you'll have 16 other bills that are filed. Yeah. And, you know, how does any one person uh, know all that? So, you you know, it's it's like going to college or anything else. There has to be a winnowing process because you can't take every applicant. So what's the winnowing process? Well, is it, is it, is it uh, something that's needed? Is it a well-written bill? Is it well thought out? You know, who benefits, who loses, who's affected. And so leadership has to go through all those things. And I, I respect them for their opinions on that. And uh, you may not like it. Uh, sometimes it's partisan. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, if you're in the majority, you're going to hear the majority party uh, bills first. And, you know, you're lucky in the minority party to get it heard. That's yeah. just the facts of life. But, uh you know, so the, the basic, the basic, the basic response to that is to try harder and get your own people in a position to do that. You know, uh, so uh, that's actually what happened in 1990. You know, I was there for the divided house in 1988 through yeah, 1990. That's right. And, and so you know, the Democrats could, took control in 1990 and kept it for a long time after that. But, uh, at this point, I'm not sure that they'll ever get it back unless there's another lottery type situation. Right. Yeah. What was it like serving in the in that fifty fifty session? Uh, it was brutal. Okay. It, it was brutal because I mean the only way that made it work was we had alternating speakers. You know, one speaker one day, one speaker the next day. We had alternating chairmen. So I was the co-chairman of the House Financial Institutions Committee, and my counterpart uh, was a nice guy. It was not a partisan committee, so we worked with each other. We knew what bills we were going to hear. Uh, we knew we knew uh, well, we didn't have that many bills, but uh, we we got along. His name was George Smith from Indianapolis, and. Uh, so that, that worked out for the most part. Some of the other committees that were uh, like an employment labor committee had a lot of bills that were filed in it. And so what happened is the chairman of each committee was allowed 10 wild cards, which meant that, you know, even if you didn't agree with the other side to hear a bill, if the if the one member wanted to have a bill heard, he would get it heard. And the other thing is, if it would tie, if you had a tie on the boat, it would go to the floor. So I can remember towards the end of the session when the calendar gets long, we had sometimes 120, 140 bills <laughs> to try to work through on the last day of the session. Uh, so we would come in at seven o'clock in the morning, and work till midnight, just trying to punch through these bills and then the Senate would pretty much eliminate most of the most of the bills and, and send over a short list but then you know, they couldn't get it passed so it kind of forced the cooperation on the end product uh, what bills are going to be heard at the end interesting okay yeah so do you think that, you know, when you're thinking about the differences between having like a 50-50 session where everything is, you know, divided 
versus having a supermajority session, um, you know, what do you think is better off in those situations for getting things done? Can you get something done in a 50-50 session, or is it just constant battles? Well, stuff was done in the stuff was done in the fifty-fifty session because you were forced to get anything done. You, were, you either had to say we're not getting anything done, or yeah. things we we do get done, but you were going to have to work together to get them done. Okay. And you know, in the in a supermajority, you know, not commenting on a bill or any bill or any sort of result, you know, you don't have to worry about what the other side thinks. You don't, right. You don't. You don't have to take their recommendations or their opinions or consider them in any way. Just, here's the way it's going to be, boom, just shove it through. Yeah, okay, so the 50-50 sessions were forced people to, to, comp- to make compromises because they wanted to do something. And, right. um, yeah, okay, interesting, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was long and tedious and stuff, but stuff did get done. Yeah. And, and, uh, and it forced people... Uh, Force leadership, force people in the house to, you know, that were interested in getting something done, and we had to work together. Yeah, okay. And how did your legislative service affect your family life? Uh, that's primarily why I got out. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because uh, I didn't like being away from home. Uh, I mean, we worked from Monday till Friday, so I had, you know, also had a law office, a law office going at the same time. So it was, I'd go, go home on Friday afternoon, Friday night, have to get up in, in, on Saturday, uh, work all day Saturday, work all day Sunday, leave on Monday morning. So, you know, from the session, we were in session, it was, it was really hard. It's was hard on my wife than it was me, because uh, she had to, hold down the floor and uh, uh, you know I think I missed a lot of kids growing up during that time uh, when the kids came up they were delighted you know they got to run around the state house I bet yeah do, do fun things and uh, but you know it was one of the reasons I, I decided that uh, you know being in the legislature one for me I also thought it hurt my law practice had been to help it because, you know, your clients may need something right away. They can't wait till May for you to attend to things or show up in court or whatever it might take. So uh, I thought it hurt my law practice. And then sort of the nail in the, the, nail in the coffin was uh, for, for, for me to continue was that, you know, I, I got a point where uh, I had local people turn against me and like, uh, they turned local Democrats turned against me for the reason I'm not going to go into. But, okay. Uh, uh, they, uh, I, you know, I just couldn't continue to work with it. I just said, I can't do this anymore. These three reasons are why I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, and in the Indiana General Assembly, how influential would you say lobbyists were on, like the legislation that would get passed or promoted? Well, I think they're. I think they're still. Uh, they were influential then, and they're influential today. Okay. Uh, and uh, I don't know that one is 
I don't know that one era is more or less influential than that. I, I will tell you that back at that time, lobbyists could go into legislative services agency and just basically say, I'm here to have a bill drawn up. So it wasn't just the legislature that could show up. Uh, you know, the lobbyists could show up and get bills drawn up. Uh, 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 claiming that they have permission from the have permission from the uh, uh, the member of the legislature to draw it up, you know. So, and Pat Bowen, when he was the speaker, changed that because I think somebody went down there claiming they had permission of Representative Bauer to draw the bill, and he had not given it. So, uh, Bauer put in a Bauer put in a rule that uh, and we had to have the legislator there or the legislator's assistant there uh, before you could go to LSA and ask for a bill to be drafted or an amendment to be drafted. So, uh, but 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 then just like now, there are, legis- there are lobbyists that uh, and, and that exert a lot of influence over uh, legislation through the force of their personality. Uh, through a number of clients that make contributions, through you know the law firm they work for, the political connections that they have—it's just it's a combination of all those things. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And and, so- and, to, and to be candid, I mean, you know, the legislature, the Indiana legislature, at least, doesn't have much much of a staff. I mean, they've got legislative. Assistants uh, who primarily work on uh, uh, constituent work, responding to constituents and, and and those sorts of things. They don't have research people. They don't have uh, they don't have technical expertise in a lot of areas. They don't have the staff to do that. So lobbyists can uh, lobbyists can, can be very influential by having. Uh, a lot more facts and information than anybody else in the state house can. So that's another way they could be influential. And I have to say, for the most part, that's the that's why lobbyists are influential. Not it's, it's and I've seen lobbyists and organizations give a lot of money to legislators, but they don't end up with anything. So I saw that this past session, and uh, but they just had. They didn't have. They had bad information, and uh, and they they couldn't rectify it. So uh, you know, so having political influence or having clients to give don- uh, donations or uh, uh, friendships doesn't always necessarily mean that you get you get the results that you like. Uh, but having information is as powerful as. All those things put together sometimes. Yeah. Sure. So, as a legislator, how do you know if like a if a lobbyist is going to provide you like really straightforward information, or if they're really, you know, kind of a, just giving you a very biased view of of an issue? Uh, well, I can I can tell you my own experience. Is, yeah. Is, is that they would ask me, or they would. They would make their pitch to me. They would make their pitch to me, and then I would ask, "Well, what's the other side of this story?" Okay. 
well, what is somebody going to come here and, and tell me about this? Right. That that's not not consistent with what you're saying. And and I I would have to give them I would have to give them that story because if you don't if you don't give them the full story, uh, they know that you uh, you're somebody that, that they can't trust to give them all the information. Ah, okay, uh, sure. It's a self-enforcing. It's a self-enforcing uh, system that they have, mm-hmm. uh, where if somebody gives you information that's not accurate or inconsistent or uh, uh, not inconsistent. It's, it's not. It's not factual. It's not. Uh, it's not truthful. Uh, and so, you know, the first time the legislator relies on that, it gets burned. Well, that's. That's the end of that lobbyist uh, in terms of having much influence at all. That word gets around pretty fast. And so, uh, you know, you can make a mistake and you can apologize for a mistake, and most legislators will accept it. But if you purposely say the wrong thing, knowing it's not true or not factual, uh, not accurate, uh, then that that world travels fast. Yeah. Okay. And to what extent extent would you say uh, money played a role in, in politics and like the influencing legislators or something like that? Um, I think it has a place. I don't think it's the final determination about stuff. Okay. I mean, I think. It's just like, it's kind of like, it's kind of an extension of human nature. I mean, if you're, if somebody supports you, if somebody's friendly to you, if somebody thinks you're important uh, and expresses that either in a comment or financially, if you're an elected official, well, you're naturally going to listen to what they have to say. Yeah. Uh, it's not a determiner of what's going to what's going to eventually happen. And okay. Again, I saw I saw that this past session. I've seen it in every session. I've seen it in person. Uh, I think I think I'm not even sure if it buys you access. Okay. Uh, and I don't even want to use the word buy. I want to use you know results and access. Um, uh, I think it I think it can. And it does for the most part, but not in all cases. Okay. I think that, I think that, uh, uh, but it's, it's, you know, lobbyists try to be friends to legislators, or lobbyists try to understand legislators, uh, what they think, how they think it, why they think it, they try to understand their background, where they're from, what their motivations are. Uh, it's like working in any environment, you know, you try to, try to find out about the person so you can uh, craft your arguments to uh, be accepted by them. And so it's just like a friendship in a small town. You know? uh, so uh, and the, so the legislators know who they can rely on, who they're friends with. Doesn't Again, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get what you want, but you know, as I said, it's an extension. It's an extension of 
just trying to uh, become friendly with somebody. Mm-hmm. So they'll see you, see you in a good light. You know, we want them to see you in a good light. Appreciate what you say. Know you're a serious person, and uh, they can rely on what you say. Yeah, that's more that's more important to them than you know, cash. Okay. Uh, so when people are like in the general assembly and stuff, and or if they're like running a campaign, and they get a donation from a group, uh, organization or whatever, you know, I guess they're they're appreciative of that, but not all legislators or are going to necessarily support the positions of that group that donated to their campaign. It just kind of depends on the situation, I guess. Yeah, that's right. That doesn't. It doesn't guarantee support. It doesn't guarantee your bills going to get hurt. Yeah. It doesn't guarantee, doesn't guarantee that uh, leadership will make the chairman hear the bill. I mean, it doesn't doesn't necessarily result in anything. But I mean, they know who their big, but they leadership knows who their big contributors are. They know, you know, who has supported them consistently. They know. Uh, they know. Uh, you know, if, if a person if a person has never made a contribution before and suddenly they make one, it's like, well, what do they want? You know? Right. Okay. Yeah. It's just kind of weird. So yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's, I, I would rather, you know, there are people in the, you find that there are people in the General Assembly that, are, uh, that try to be helpful, you know, to, 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 that's just their nature to be helpful. The first question that I ask is, how can I help? Yeah. There's other there are other people that say uh, their their first instinct is not to be helpful. The first instinct is to tell you why they can't be helpful. Uh, and so you're so you tend to go towards people who try to be helpful. And and if those people have been helpful over the past, you want them you want to want them to continue to be there. So you will support them financially going forward because as a lobbyist or as a legislator you want them in that position uh, to be helpful uh, so I hope that makes sense and it's uh, uh, it's a uh, I, again it's just an extension of human nature yeah okay um, thinking about I guess legislation specifically what would you say was the most controversial legislative issue when you served? Uh, it's when Governor Orr was trying to put through his A-plus education program. Okay. It uh, was pretty controversial at the time. Uh, there was also some labor stuff that was trying to uh, trying to prevent uh, unions from having an opportunity to bid on certain projects. Those two things were pretty controversial. Okay. When I was there, and what exactly was the A plus program that you mentioned? Uh, I think I can't remember exactly, but it was more. Involved more testing, more objective, trying to get to a more objective uh, type of. Evaluation of teachers and students and that. Oh, okay. Yeah. And and you know, again, it was 
if we looked back on it now, we would think it was not very extreme. But I think back then it was a lot different than what teachers and students and parents were used to. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was trying to bring about uh, philosophically uh, more accountability by teachers and at schools, and to you know the better you did, the more money you got. Uh, the better people did on tests, the more money you got in school. So the big issue was, well, you know, by doing this, you're just going to incentivize teachers to teach the test as opposed to teaching the course. Yeah, okay, and right. So it'll, it'll take take the focus off of education and put it on money. That's, that was basically the two philosophical arguments that were out there. Yeah, sure. Um, I also, I, I read that there were some legislative issues that you had some involvement with, at least, I mean, the newspapers, like, something about uh, product tampering. Do you remember anything like that? Yeah, so that was, uh, that was a bill I was involved in. Uh, uh, at the time, there was some uh, terrifically sad things that were going on, uh, where there was a young girl in Indianapolis that picked up a bottle of her uh, tube of toothpaste in a Kroger store and blew up. Oh my gosh. And, and blew her hand off. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah it was awful. And then, and then there was the Tylenol scare. You know, people were people were putting essentially poison in Tylenol bottles. Jeez. Uh, and there were copycat crimes. So uh, I crafted a bill that was called Consumer Product Tampering and tried to make a special uh, criminal spot for that in the criminal code uh, to deal with that kind of situation with different penalties and so forth. Wow. So did that pass? Yes, it passed. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I've, I, yeah. I've, I don't, I guess you don't hear as much about product tampering um, these days. At least I haven't heard too much about, but that sounds like a really interesting thing that you could understand. That would be a major problem if people decided to start messing with things like that. Yikes! Well, yeah, I'm sure it was. It was. Uh, it was. It was. It was in the headlines right then. So, uh, you know, I don't know if the bill actually prevented anything from happening, but yeah, I do recall. I, I do recall. And I can't put any specificity that where it took place, but there were a couple prosecutions that resulted in it from it. Wow, yeah. Um, another one I, I read about was something like a, a ban on cold alcohol. Do you remember anything like that? Well, so I, I don't remember anything about that, but there was... When you say cold, you mean like cold, like cool, chill? Yeah, like it was like in a refrigerator, like something about making it so people couldn't sell alcohol that was already, like, like cold and refrigerated? Uh, you know, I, I frankly don't remember that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, you know, that's always been a, a point of contention because grocery stores and convenience stores can't sell cold beer. Yeah. The only people that can sell it are, are liquor stores. Okay. So... It could have been related to that, so I can't. I really can't. Sure. Um, and there's also uh, one story I read about. I've actually also talked to the other person mainly involved with this, but apparently you got left at like an IU game by accident. Yeah, that's, that's right. 
Yes, yeah, so can you tell the story about how that went down? Because I, John Coldren told me his perspective on it and what happened, and uh, just thought it'd be funny to hear your side now. <laughs> well, so I have gone to, uh, so the, uh, the IU government affairs guy was a guy named Joe Franklin, so he would uh, occasionally take a group of legislators down to IU games. So, uh, they was taking a van with about, I don't know, 10 or 12 of us down there. John was in the van, along with a bunch of other people, and I told my, I told my uh, wife that I was coming up to IU for a game, wonder if she could come up with uh, uh, another couple we were friends with, and I got them tickets to that. And... Uh, so at halftime, I went up to see him and uh, said hi to him and went back and sat in my seat. And then when the game was over, I went back to say goodbye to him. Uh, and then I said, well, I've got to leave. And so when I went to the where the van was parked, it was gone. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I didn't know what to do. So I went back on the floor. And at that time, Steve Alford was playing for IU. Yeah. So I, I ran into his dad, who was my high school coach, and said, uh, said, uh, hey, I, I've had this problem. And so he said, well, Mark, why don't you come with us? We'll go to the wagon wheel or wherever that place was, and we'll have a, we'll eat with the team. So I got to go eat with the IU team at the big wheel or wagon wheel or whatever <laughs> it's called. Wow. And then a friend of, friend of Steve's and, and me, uh, volunteered to take me back home and then I got when I got home which is about midnight <laughs> I, I uh, got a call from John and he said are you okay he said I've had the state police out looking for you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I told him I told him the story then the next day they had a resolution for me on the house you know on the house floor uh, for being lost and being found and yeah. all that sort of stuff <laughs> so John said uh, well if you're he said, when we got to the back to the state house, everybody said, well, whose coach does this belong to? <laughs> so, anyway, we, we had a fun time on the floor. I, I made a speech and said it was a bipartisan lack of effort yeah. to you know, make sure I got back safely. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I saw in the newspaper that you there was like a picture of you holding a sign that said, like, uh, oh, if found, you know, please bring back to the <laughs> state house. Yeah, return to the state. Yeah, that's, so, yeah. that's yeah, funny. That's, true. that's a that's a pretty good story. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> might have to do like a blog post about that one or something like that. That's good. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, let's see. So, how would you summarize your time overall as a state legislator? Well, uh, I wouldn't change it. I'm glad I went. I made a lot of good friends. Uh, I made a lot of. Uh, I think I passed a few bills that were of a consequence. Uh, it made me more confident as a speaker. Uh, it, it resulted in me being, I didn't retire from the legislature to become a lobbyist, but I eventually became one. I think in part because uh, somebody thought I had some talent and I wasn't particularly partisan and got along well with people, so I thought, think that they saw there was some potential in me to do that, to be a lobbyist, so it's been over 30 years now, so 
I wouldn't be here but for my time at the General Assembly. Yeah, okay. And uh, what lessons did you learn from your experiences? Uh, don't burn bridges. Okay, yeah. Do you have... I try to, try yeah. to see things from other perspectives. Sure, okay. Uh, did you have any regrets as a legislator? Well, I think I missed some time with my family and my kids, and I think it wasn't uh, you know, particularly helpful to my law practice. So, you know, you always regret that. And uh, uh, so you can't get that time back with your kids. That's probably my biggest regret. Yeah. Uh, what was your proudest moment as a legislator? Um, you know, I have to say when I... Um, I think I had several. It's when you got a bill through the process, you were always proud. Okay. And it's, I was proud of that uh, consumer product tampering because I created that out of my own brain, you know. That's that's always good when that happens. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, somebody else didn't ask me to file something or do something uh, for a particular organization. I just, you know, I just thought it up. Yeah, okay. Um, what advice would you give to future legislators or current legislators? Uh, make sure that you have a complete and thorough understanding of what it's going to do to your family life, uh, how it's going to affect your wife, how it's going to affect your kids. Uh, understand that you will be Told in many directions. Uh, try to try to understand and not be dismissive of people who are have other opinions. Uh, try to listen carefully, and uh, I think all those things will help make you a better legislator if you decide after talking to your wife and children that that's what you ought to do. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, what, in your opinion, would you say is the most important work of the General Assembly? Um, I think the most important work is to is to uh, try to make sure that we have uh, a good economy and a fair opportunity for everyone to partake of that good economy. Okay. And what would you say the public does not know about the Indiana General Assembly? I don't think they realize the pressure uh, that, that uh, members of the General Assembly are under to uh, uh, just the, the family pressures, the pressure of trying to know a lot about different things. Uh, you know, just about everyone that's there if not all of them are, you know, trying to do the right thing as they see it. And it's a lot of pressure to have to sometimes uh, vote politically when your heart's not maybe feeling it. Right. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, your leadership sort of advises you need to vote a certain way. Uh, I mean, I've seen legislators literally curl up on the floor uh, being under some pressure. I think that I think that pressure is always out there. Yeah. Uh, so 
one of the things I've always learned as a lobbyist is, you know, the last thing you want to do is uh, make a legislator feel unprepared or uh, surprised, uh, not knowing what's going on in their district or not knowing on what's good, not knowing what's going on in some aspect of what's important to them. So, you know, that's another thing that uh, they're very aware of is to, is to, is, uh, you know, the pressure to kind of know what's going on in their district. So it's, it's a lot of work. Maybe that's the bottom line. It's just a heck of a lot of work to, to be a good legislator. It's really, it's really a lot of work. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, no one really wants to be the person that goes against their party leadership on a bill, I guess. So. Right. Yeah, that's tough. Have you ever had to do that or did you ever do that? Uh, I can't. I, I, I recall one vote. I may have done that, but I'm not sure. How has the state of Indiana changed over the course of your lifetime? Uh, well, I think it's become uh, less rural. There are more people living in the city now uh, and more urban than it was when I was in the legislature when I was born up. Uh, I don't think that that's so here's an interesting statistic for you. I'll try to look it up one of these days. If you have okay, a chance. sure. So uh, I think I did this. I think I did my own research and sort of so 70, it's like 67% of the people in Indiana now live in cities. But 67% of the legislators that represent the state are for rural communities, from the rural areas. Wow, okay. So, there's sort of a disconnect between the population and the representation in terms of the urban rural settings. In northwest Indiana, and uh, Fort Wayne, Indianapolis, and Evansville, I mean, large industrial areas. Yeah. And uh, so I think... I think there's been a not a disconnect, but sure. maybe a realization in the last few years that uh, Indiana is more of a producing state, manufacturing state, than it is an agricultural state. Okay. Uh, the other thing I would say is that uh, the situation which was making Northwest Indiana a but of jokes in terms of its politics and its sort of under you know, the armpit of Chicago type jokes about it. Uh, Northwest Indiana has been uh, in the last 30, 40 years has really changed and how it operates. Uh, it's got, I think, a much more uh, open and uh, transparent government. It's not. It's it's. It used to be. Used to be unfriendly to industrial uh, to to companies. The politicians up there said that you know you can't. Uh, you know industry needs to pay everything. People don't need to pay anything for 
tax wise, so the industries up there were, uh, you know, heavily taxed to the point where they were just about ready to leave the area. And I think there's been a lot of improvement up there in the last 30 or 40 years that I've seen, and just in terms of uh, its its standing in the community. And I always thought it's a hidden jewel in the state. But I think it's starting to come out of its shell now. A lot of good things are happening up there. So that, that's a big thing I've seen in the last 30 or 40 years. Yeah, okay. Um, how would you say the people of Indiana, how, how have they changed? Are you, are you there? Yes. You there? Yep. Okay. Uh, say that question again. I was switching between my phone and the car. Yeah, no problem. How have the people of Indiana changed? Well, I think they've changed uh, like every place else because they have 24-7 news channels uh, that like I think you use the term nationalized now. I think yeah. like a lot of places were more nationalized because we get we get constant news and updates on what's going on in Washington and the world and uh, and I think uh, we're less isolated than we were. We have more communications. You know, in some ways, like everybody else, we've kind of lost our we've. I don't want to say we've lost our identity. We may have lost our innocence to some degree because now we're exposed to all this stuff straight time. Yeah. Uh, we've been uh, tribalized a little bit by the Fox News and the MSNBC News, uh, you know, constantly sort of feeding uh, the echo chamber. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. I think it's, uh, it's not just changed Indiana. I think it's changed everybody. Uh, that uh, and we're you know less less rural, so I think those are I think those are two big changes that not only apply to Indiana but every place else. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, what hasn't changed about the people of Indiana? So in some states, you are seeing really drastic bills dealing with. Uh, different subject matters, really, really drastic. Those other states have uh, super majorities, and you know, so they're mostly socially related bills, social, culture related bills. Yeah, they're very drastic, and we don't have that in Indiana. And I think. There's a, I don't want to, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to say moderate, but in a different way. I mean, I think there's a, I think there's a, a moderation mm -hmm. in Indiana that I find admirable okay. in terms of how they approach stuff, and, and it's kind of always been there. Right. Uh, I, think, I think it's part of our culture, uh, but, you know, like any state that has, so, you know, the southern part of the state is probably more like Kentucky and you know the northern part of the state is more like Michigan and Chicago 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a vast difference in it, but I think the common, in my opinion, the common bond is that I think we really try to find a, a solution that's uh, to issues that common sense and more moderate in nature. Right, okay. Uh, now we've had, you know, there's some str- extreme things that have happened on both sides, and but I think generally we kind of end up in a middle ground. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's where people like to be. Right. The middle, middle of the Middle West. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Kind of around the center, not so much on the extreme wings of the spectrum. Yeah, something like that. So it's. Uh, I think that's. I think we're pretty consistent. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, let's see. Last question then. Uh, what do you want people to know about their influence on the Indiana General Assembly? I'll say that again. Uh, what do you want the people of Indiana to know about their influence on the Indiana General Assembly? Uh, I think they should know that they're that they have the ability to uh, they are empowered they are empowered to uh, influence legislation uh, by their uh, contact, their ability to contact their legislators. And I have seen bills fail and I have seen bills pass uh, on the basis of one person uh, making an objection or asking for help in a situation. Mm, okay. And I think, uh, you know, that's, so I, I, I don't think it does any good to write somebody that's not in the district. So I think most legislators, if they get a letter from somebody not in their district or a request from somebody not in their district to do something, I think that goes right, right in the trash. Uh, yeah. But if it's from their district and if there's a coalition, especially that builds up in their district, I think they can have great influence on an outcome. Yeah, okay. I think legislators are still responsive to that, and I think they, uh, sometimes they're not, but most times they are. Right. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Um. Well, that's all the questions I have for you. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to mention? or? Well, I, I can't think of anything. I think you've been pretty thorough. And probably John Coulter told you I had a lot more than I could ever tell you. <laughs> uh, a lot, lot longer than I was. <laughs> and, and John's an example of a friend of mine that, uh, even though we were from the opposite parties, you know, he was the chief counsel for the speaker, we, we bonded over basketball and over just a lot of different things that we had in common. And we've been friends ever since. He's a great resource for uh, 
a great resource for me and, and other people widely respected for his advice and opinions about things. And he's the type of people you want to have in the General Assembly. We could use 150 of them there. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Well, yeah, thanks again for doing this. Um, I really appreciate it. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much again. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.